This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. to A Hungry Society. I'm Corsha Wilson, and this is a show where we talk about food, food media, and so much more. Today's guest is a very special guest that has been on my podcast bucket list for a long time. It is Michael W. Twitty, a culinary historian and food writer from the Washington, D.C. area, and the founder of AfroCulinaria.com. He's appeared on Bizarre Foods America with Andrew Zimmern, Many Rivers to Cross with Dr. Henry Louis Gates, and has lectured to over 400 groups around the world. He has served as a judge for the James Beard Awards, is a former fellow with the Southern Foodways Alliance and TED, and is first revolutionary in residence at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Southern Living named Michael W. Twitty, one of 50 people changing the South, and TheRoot.com added him to their 100 most influential African Americans under 45. In 2017, HarperCollins released Twitty's The Cooking Gene, tracing his ancestry from Africa to America and from slavery to freedom. The book was a finalist for, let's list all these accolades, for your book. (laughs) A finalist for the Kirkus Prize, the Art of Eating Prize, and a third place winner of Barnes & Noble's Discover New Writers Awards in nonfiction. The Cooking Gene won the 2018 James Beard Award for best writing and it was Book of the Year. This year, his piece on visiting Ghana for Bon Appetit was included in Best Food Writing, the anthology, and was nominated for a 2019 James Beard Award. Michael W. Twitty, welcome to Hungry Society. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Korsha. <laughs> so, I mean, it's... It, <clears throat> when I was thinking about this show today and, like, all the things I wanted to talk to you about it was kind of hard to think of an entry point, but then I just thought, who does Michael W. Twitty describe himself as? So who are you? Okay, so uh, uh, I would say conduit. Hmm. Um, I am Br'er Rabbit in human form. Um, And I say that with a little bit of cheek, but not too much. I go where people don't want to go. Um, And people don't really want to go to the plantation as a source, enslavement as a source, or even across the ocean, the Middle Passage, the the villages and cities where ancestors came from are um, very dim to us. Those of us who are descendants of Africans in the Americas, especially the United States. And I think that there's so much beautiful material there that um, we have to rescue and recover. So that briar patch is of our history is where my home is, my real home is. 
Um, it's not in the, this world, and it's a very precarious place to be, especially as a cook, as a chef, as someone who works with the food because uh, I'm in this state of limbo between the ancestors and the present all the time. And so um, I see myself as a conduit, and it's not always a, it's not always a, uh, a happy place to be. Um, you know, griot in West Africa, we, we have this honored idea of what a griot is in African-American culture. Actually, griots were actually low on the totem pole in the caste societies which they belonged because they didn't work with the land and they weren't craftsmen and they weren't royalty. They worked for the royalty. So um, that biblical phrase, is, <laughs> the prophet is not beloved in his own home, mm. is very true. It's very true. So that's how I describe myself. So... Um your work, I think, you, you talked about how you are so deeply, you know, rooted, um, to use that phrase. You're so deeply rooted in this distinct um, history and also in the, the places and how these places were impacted. Um, does that get challenging to root yourself in the past so much and, but still make it very real in this present moment? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges for me is that um, you would think that in this very troubling era we're living in that my biggest uh, pushback would come from the other team. Mm. It doesn't. It comes from other African Americans who misread what I do as a happy return to the past. Um, you'll notice that on my book cover for The Cooking Gene, I'm not smiling. I have this very contemplative look. And I remember arguing with people um, about the cover of the book, which for an author is always like you know, a big deal. Look, the title and the cover are two things where you may lose. And I said, no, nah, I ain't smiling. This picture is important because the picture is actually of me in front of the, the main kitchen at Somerset Place Plantation. Um, and some people will look at pictures of me picking cotton or cooking or whatever and go, Oh, God, he wants to take us back. No, I don't want to take you back. I want you to remember from whence you came. And I want you to have a clear digital color image of what life really was, not some woodcut. I want you to really feel that this could have been you if you were not redeemed from slavery, which, you know, is a part of the Jewish tradition that I come from as well. You know, always remember every day you wake up, you too could have been enslaved. You too could have been in their spot if things had not changed, if fighting and struggle and resistance had not occurred. But also to give the ancestors a face, a reality. So that in that particular plantation in North Carolina was actually rescued by a black woman named Dorothy Sproul Redford, who, taking the lead of um, genealogists like Alex Haley, actually went to that property, saved it from ruin, and created a natural historical site. And that was where several hundred enslaved people lived at any given time for about a late 18th century through the end of slavery. So I, I take it as a badge of honor, what I do, but you know, I get a lot of pushback. Some people have misunderstood what I do and they'll go, they'll say things on social media like, oh, you know, this guy wants to make dinners for white people so they can feel good about slavery. No such thing, no such thing. Um, uh, we, it's not how I operate. But it's, it's also, another part of it is that we, we love the ancestors, but the ancestors are, you know, we went to this, Taylor and I, hi Taylor. Hello. Um, <laughs> yes, we have a very special guest in the studio too. It's Taylor. Thank you, Gorsa, <laughs> uh, for having us. Um, and this exhibit we went to in, in um, the former Musée d'Homme and uh, the Museum of Man in Paris was about ghosts and spiritual spirits in Asian culture, and they talked about hungry ghosts, and that kind of spooked me a little bit because mm. hungry ghosts are literally like the spirits of people who were really sort of like. Um, gluttonous and lusty in this life just can't they still can't get enough so they're doomed but also hungry ghosts are also sometimes your ancestors who are like you know what we had a hard life you you, you hear us you see us now hook us up mm. and for me particularly working with something material like food which in African spirituality is a vehicle to get to the ancestors there are times when I have to say to them okay you know what I done gave you this whole day can I just take a shower now? Can I be with my boo? <laughs> Can I do other stuff other than talk about, think about this history? Mm -hmm. 
they can be very clingy sometimes because you are the person who sees them. Think, think of it like this. Think of Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost. At first, she's oh, totally, yeah. totally a trickster, right? Mm-hmm. But then she realizes she does have this gift. And once she realizes she has it, all of the spirits come through yeah. and they want to be heard and seen and recognized. That's how I feel sometimes. And I have to actually spiritually open and close my cooking days. And when I do certain speeches and talks with libation, because it's, it gets heavy. Um, but that's the worst of it. And I got to tell you something. I always have to remind myself that not one second in my life compares with one second in the world of our ancestors or people of color around the world today who live in far worse circumstances than I do. So I just cut my, I cut my grief at that and I, I, leave, I leave that respect for them. Yeah, it, um, two things. So, you know, when you were talking about some of the pushback that you get, you know, I see it as well on social media. Um, and I think when it comes to when we talk about slavery, when we talk about the Middle Passage, when we talk mm-hmm. about these things, black people carry, um, and not just black people, uh, Americans carry right. this deep shame about it. And so when they see you, they see you on the cover, um, in the clothing, when they see you, you know, in the fields, when they see you cooking at the earth, like um, how slaves had to, mm-hmm. it evokes this deep, deep shame. Why did we fight back? Why did we kill them? Why did we just all break free and, you know something, baby? Because you had to be here. You had to be born. That's why. It's almost like we have a collective... I've seen this uh, being a survivor of abusive relationships myself and having seen how that operates in families. We, some, people, some people have, have like, a, um, how do I say this? Like, they feel an antagonism towards that mother. Right. Going to put up with that abusive husband mm. or father. Why didn't you just leave him or kill him or hurt him or something? Baby, because she had she was trying to survive. They're not grasping the nuance of They're the situation. They're not grasping the nuance of the situation. And yes, I understand it. We always we, we, we want that Django slash Black Panther moment in our history. You know, we want, you know, Harriet to come out swinging. Mm-hmm. And she did. But she did it on her terms. In her own way. She was lucky more than anything else. She was lucky to be born Harriet. But I mean, not everybody, but one of the bigger points of my work is that the majority of our cooking and our food, despite the fact that we're free people of color who were amazing uh, tavern owners and cooks, um, Solomon Northup's wife, yeah. right, was a, was a French trained chef, even though she was illiterate, and a fantastic chef. The vast majority of us had to wait until the last day in June of 1865 when it was all over. The vast majority of us didn't run to Canada. We weren't Drake. <laughs> Baby, we weren't up in Toronto. Did going. you drink Drake? I, I said Drake. Look, you look at it and say snow. Um, <laughs> up in Toronto. <laughs> You know, y'all remember Snow? Snow had that little one, that little one hit wonder. Oh my God! Baby, <laughs> I did not br- expect Snow to come up during this. Bringing reggae to Toronto and to Ontario, okay? Uh, to <laughs> Toronto. Um, but you know, hey, this is what we are, and people forget that we resisted every single day in little ways that kept poking holes in the institution, and that is the we're the ones who freed ourselves, not Lincoln. We freed us, and. Um, that's, that's why my emphasis in food is on that part. And also the connection with West Africa and the Caribbean and Brazil. Because um, we talk about it in generalities. And part of, a big part of my work is being very, very hyper-specific, talking about how ecosystems and climate and climate change and soil varieties, because the ancestors become the soil. Mm. I say they become part of it. They go back to the earth, and the earth becomes them. The earth enters their bodies through the food and through the nutrients. It's about trade winds, and it's about traders and pirates and missionaries, and it gets very complicated. And there's also a little bit of pushback about that too. You know, I just want to say this real quick. You know, those of you who are, who've read the book, who've been, ah, oh, why well, I got to learn about the cotton and the tobacco and this and the slave sales and other, other. I just want to learn about the food. Okay, deep breaths, like 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 um, Levar Burton says, right? Before we start reading the book, first of all, 
family, I appreciate you. I love you. But I got to let you know something. This book is not Soul Food 3, The Resurrection of Big Mama. Don't drink that, baby. Don't You're going you're gonna to spit it out. Don't drink. Well, you better wait to drink, Corsha. I'm trying to save your life, girl. Thank you. I almost choked. <laughs> it is not The Resurrection of Big Mama. It's not Soul Food 3. That's not my job to give you a feel-good nonfiction portrait of our ancestral food world. It is my job, however, to talk about how these things come through my particular identity. We don't have a lot of food narratives African-American. That sounds funny, but we really don't. Um, our dear, our dear our mother, Ntozaki Shange, wrote you know, um, her narrative. Averna Mae Grosner wrote her narrative. But there's a paucity of strictly food narratives among African-Americans and almost none from African-American men. And as a black gay man in particular who is not Christian, who has, you know, almost completely Southern roots, I felt it was important to talk about how food um, impacts an individual's life and journey and how if you go back to the generations, how we can trace those things. But it's important to know that backstory because we are complicated. We are rich. We are varied. We are layered. We're not just, this, it's not, our food is not just comfort food. It's not a simple food. It has a real heritage and history. And it's a cuisine. It's not just some smattering of uh, archetypes and stereotypes about what it means to be black. And that's where we hit the danger when we have that one narrative we try to ride out. Um, and the other part is that I want people to be able to do this for themselves. I want them to be able to look at their own heritage and go, yeah, our family is from Louisiana, and we do this. Our family is from our Afro-Latins from Kentucky, and we do this. Or we, we're, oh, I was born in Harlem, but people from South Carolina, other people are from Barbados. This is, okay, now I can see my ancestors and see how where these things come from. So that when you look at your child, you were able to then sit them down and go, the reason why we eat this, and this come down, and this is how your grandmother made it, this is how I like it. You're going to change it a little bit, but you're going to pass it down to your children. I think that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings or, or trigger them. I just want you to own your heritage so much. I want you to own, own your own source code so that we have no room for appropriation. Right. Yeah, and I, that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is how in your book, in The Cooking Gene, the specificity of your own story and putting it together, um, You, even though it is your story, you kind of create this this space in which as a reader you you start to think about your own mm -hmm. like where where do I come from who are my great 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 parents right you know um and for me personally as someone who grew up in Maryland yeah, yes um grew up in Adelphi and then Waldorf it was this kind of I had no idea of the like agricultural history of Maryland Waldorf is suburb Right. It is chain restaurants and Walmart and Target. Used to be tobacco country. Right. They still have Miss Tobacco at the Charles County Fair every year. Someone has crowned Miss Tobacco. But, <laughs> which people like. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, there is, there's a lot of history there. And then my dad's side is from Chesapeake, Virginia. Wow. So this was, you know, in telling your story, you, you touch other people as well. Wow. So, yeah, we have a lot... In, in common, and I felt that. You got reading. that bay in your blood, girl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the Caribbean as well. And the Caribbean. I love it. All the all the ports and points. Mm -hmm. But you know what's interesting about places like um, where you grew up and your father's from and places in the Caribbean? It's amazing how like quiet and simple and small these places seem now. But back when we were the main aspect of business, bustling, thriving wealth, untold wealth, untold activity. It's really weird to go to a, the Southern Maryland docks and go to Charleston or go to West Africa even. And these places where all this history happened are so desolate and quiet, like ghost towns. And then you imagine, you remember, all this stuff came from these places. You can still see little hints of it. Um, and it's just, it's just amazing how like quiet they are, how unassuming, and how, how we go in those places and go, okay, this is where it actually happened. Well, okay, mm -hmm. this is real. Is it eerie for you? It's extremely eerie. I mean, we went to Wida in West Africa as part of our um, second chef's pilgrimage to West Africa, black chefs, um, African-American, Afro-Caribbean. 
And we die exported, exiled 1.2 million African souls to the New World. And it's a ghost, it's not, a, you know, a total ghost town. People live there. But it's a small town compared to what, as a settlement where people were processed to be sent to the Little Passage, it's nothing like it was. It's very quiet, very sleepy. So it is very eerie to go in those spaces and be um, in the moment. And Cape Coast Castle in Ghana was one of my darkest and deepest moments. And it also just kind of like a re- just reality check. Um, I could not go in the cal- the dungeon for women. Mm. I had a, I had like a spiritual wall between me and walking in that space. I couldn't do it. And then when I was in the men's dungeon, I had there was just I just noticed that I am so ungrateful. I said, I said, baby, you, this wasn't about them sitting around for a day or two. This was weeks, and they didn't know what's going to happen to them. And they got on that boat for months. Then they had to be quote unquote seasoned. They had to survive their first winter. They had to survive all kind of stuff so that you could be here. And I'm like, do you realize every single breath was conscious was a conscious decision to live? Every single moment that got them to make children and raise those children was a conscious decision to push on and live. And I changed my life because it, it meant that I had to do the same. I had to not take my breaths for granted and really think about that conscious decision to live. And I think another part of my work that's also complicated is the fact that I, you know, I am an interethnic, I don't see interracial because we're not, we're, he's not a Vulcan and I'm, and, and I'm not a snake person. So that you know of. That, that you know of. <laughs> you know, you white folks are tricky. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we have, I, I'm very conscious of the fact that I am in relationship with a white man, a white man of Southern heritage as well. And that his family has a complicated story, and so does mine. So uh, I guess that's not the pushback factor, right? The, the kids, some of the kids don't like that, but oh well, they can they can be salty. Um, but it, it is, uh, you know, that is a theme in my life, of you know, um, and I'm glad that you, you know you as a partner, Taylor, you you've always been open to letting me have my have my moments, but also really being attuned to the history. We just, we just actually came from a trip to um, Alabama where we went to where, a place where his family was in Marion and yep. Selma and walked the Edmund Pettus Bridge together. Wow. So for us, this is like, it, we're getting married. So for us, I felt it was important for us to collect soil, the place where our ancestors were, so that we could pour libation on our wedding and really honor the totality of both of us. That's yeah. really beautiful. Thank um, you. I wanted to talk to you about the pilgrimage that you do with chefs, with black chefs. Yeah. Can you talk about um, the first one and the second one? Sure. The first one was was a handful of us, and then it grew to double the size of the second one. Uh, first one was Ghana. They went to Benin, Togo this past year. And in reality, it's, it's not, uh, I want to make it very clear, if anybody wants to, to hang out with us, you can be a culinarian, you can be a food writer, you can be a bartender, you can be a home cook, a genealogist, a museum person, anything you want. Um, there's a space for you in these projects because we can do history, we do culture, spirituality, and we do food. But of course, you know, with anything of this nature, they're all related. So for us going to the markets, pulling the fishnets in from the, um, the ocean, um, going to the fields, the farms, seeing how palm wine is distilled, um, produced and distilled into gin, um, seeing um, um, the restaurants, the chop bars, the cafes, everything from upscale hotel spaces to, you know, stops on the road. I have not died yet from eating street food, but it is a little precarious. You gotta be, you gotta be wise whose street food you touch. But it is, it's a beautiful thing to experience that. And of course, like the first thing that happens is our chefs exit the plane and the first words they hear are welcome home, mm. which is really, really, really encouraging. Um, I've had the people get down the ground and kiss the ground. I've had people start crying. I've heard people start just laughing and just having a good time. They're just feeling like at ease. Because um, for a lot of us, it's the first time being in majority black countries. And um, seeing black folks in the money—that was always that was like my thing. I was like, okay, I'm down with this. And I and I joke, I joke with you, but it's kind of serious. 
don't drink. You went, take, take, take a sip first. Okay, good. Okay, good. Okay, great. You ain't been to Africa till you had your first monkey moment. What? Your first monkey moment. What's a like monkey moment? Like when they come down out the trees at your behind and they try to hold your cell phone for ransom. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> They'll grab your cell phone? And baboons too. And wow. God, it was the baboons. The baboons came out into the highway, like 12 of them. It, it was like, okay. A gang of baboons? A gang of, a whole family was like, where's, where's our food? Please don't feed the baboons the road. They're, they're, they're too cute. You don't want to hurt them. <laughs> or when we were in Benin, they started throwing coconuts at us. Um, wow. They, they just looked, they like, look, gangsta, <laughs> monkey. They were like, they're like, yes, get out. Get out. You know, you flash the, the little light at them. And they said, you don't understand, brother, get out. Um, in Senegal, they did take take this take this uh, girl's phone, though. Oh, it was really no. funny. And they held it. The, it was up in the tree, and it was over the crocodile pond. So she was lucky because they, they, she gave the food, the, the ransom, and they threw it on <laughs> the floor of the restaurant. I was like, I didn't know they were that damn smart. But until you this had a little wildlife time, yeah. moment in Africa, you ain't you ain't had it. You ain't really had it. And it's mm-hmm. just, I think one of the most amazing things about the continent is just the sheer number of people, the different lifestyles you find all side by side. It's to go to West Africa in particular um, is to experience love, isolation, a feeling of this is rootedness a feeling of uh, surprise, a feeling of familiarity, frustration, frustration at how colonialism has affected the mentality of people and the government, mm. all at the same time, simultaneously, and just having to deal with it and process that. It's a very intense feeling, but it's worth it. Because, you know, BJ Dennis was you know, great gullah chef, and he was just like, this trip changed his life. He said, this changed my life. So we're going to Sierra Leone next year, um, me and him, with one part of the, with one group. And then I'm taking another group of chefs to Senegal and, uh, and the Gambia. So we're going to be there for uh, 10 or 11 days exploring um, the foodways there. And we really try to cook with professional chefs, cook with the women in the village, um, meet with people who do special, like Suya, with you know, the West African barbecue. And, you know, we, we try to... Um, learn from our cousins and with next trip I really want them to also focus on telling part of our story we've done more and more of that each trip it's so important to realize that this is a two-way street Um, this isn't just about us recovering it's about them learning who we are Mm. and our journeys and being hit to the knowledge that more of us would come here and be part of this if we had access and opportunity just like more of them would come to our country if this country didn't have such awful rules regarding black and brown people and visas. And you know that's why those restrictions are so hard on us because some people want to come here and learn, want to learn our history and our story to make us, make our family circle bigger, but for politics sake, they cannot. Right. So we're trying to change it on both ends. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a big question for you, um, but you talk so much about what you've learned from the ancestors and what you've received what do you hope, you know, you'll be an ancestor one day. Um, not too soon. Not Lord. too soon. No, 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 no. Not that Give me some time, what, Lord. <laughs> what are the, the lessons that you, wanna, you want generations and generations and generations and generations later to know from you and your work? There is more to be done. Um, no one will ever have all the answers. Not me, not anybody. And it's really critical that we understand that we lost so much, it's going to take lifetimes to recover it. Words, ideas about food, ideas about plants, proverbs, um, our knowledge of the different species and how to preserve them. Um, the you know Stories of human beings. I think one of the most important things to me was not just about the food, it was about the people who created the food. And even even our even my own family, like, what did, what did my mother go through to have me to be the first truly independent black woman in our family? To not she she was. My my old her older sister and her younger sister, they went the marriage route. My mom didn't. My mom went to college. They didn't. Um, she put herself through school. 
And I just, I just now, I've, I'm, with time and distance, and her not being here anymore, I'm able to reflect on just how important that was. And how that also went to her cooking, because her cooking reflected the sense of independence, adventure, self, she was self-taught, she learned so many things. She learned, she actually learned from my grandma, but she was a different kind of cook than my grandmother was. And I think that that kind of fine, fine detail is what makes food that much more delicious and important we want to understand the human story behind it. So I want our I want our next generation of culinarians to understand that there are so many stories that need to be told. Um, I would I would put this out there because I want people to start working on this now. I want us to interview everybody, all our migration generation. So if you're British, that Windrus generation and beyond, we need to understand how Black food has evolved in Britain. We need to understand how black food has, re has evolved by the time of the Great Migration. Because now we're on the second wave, second or third wave of the Great Migration survivors. They're in their 60s and 70s. The first, the second wave, my grandparents are, are almost all gone. Mm -hmm. The first wave are gone. They were like 1910, 1915 to World War II. My grandparents were after World War II. Then there was the next wave right during civil rights. We need to get their stories about food and about where they came from, what they came to, how they recreated Southern food in non-Southern environments, West Coast, Midwest, Northeast. We need to understand that as soon as possible. We need to have our Afro-Latin brothers and sisters and Brazilian and Haitian folks, we need to make sure that they're getting all the information they possibly can about um, narratives from the Caribbean and Latin America now we don't have a second to waste so I think the most important project that we have is conducting oral histories of our own family stories and our food stories and our food steps so that we can actually base our research on something more than just books mm. what white people said about us because typically that's what happens you know I, I was I remember learning from um, one of the Native American scholars um, from Virginia, she said, you know, one thing I encourage you to do, encourage everybody to do, is not just rely on experts and sources that don't look like you. She says, you know, when people talk about Native Americans in Virginia, they should be working with community scholars, elders, Native people from the youth to the, youth to the, to the older folks to tell Native stories and not just rely on anthropologists and scholars who think they know it all. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's so important to get the get the actual material from the people. And then, with historical context, with scientific context, put all the pieces together. And it's just, and then all of a sudden, the, the colors of how you paint the picture are so saturated and so sharpened. It's so beautiful to see all the, the little tiny details all put together. And you know, we have to acknowledge this. Our elders don't always have that other meta kind of viewpoint. Yeah. They know what they know. But then, when you really get somebody who's really interested in it, they go, all right, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, tell me what you figured out. Then you show them the bigger picture, keep, you keep uh, um, you know, zooming in and zo zooming out, and they go, oh my God, I never knew oh, I that. Never thought about, yeah. I never thought about my place in the world and the universe. Mm -hmm. So that's what I want my legacy to be. Mm. That's beautiful. That and my booty. <laughs> All right. Not a bottom, we're, kids. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, all right. Ooh, well, all right, we're going to take a quick break. We we'll be right back with Michael W. Twitty. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, 
resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. Hi, my name is Sam Ben Ruby, and I'm the host of The Great Nation on Heritage Radio Network. With this show, we bring wine to the people. Each week, we bring the best guests in wine on, taste different wines on air, and invite our listeners to taste with us. You'll find our approach to wine decidedly unsnobby. You can find The Grape Nation wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Right, so we are back with Michael W. Twitty, and now we're going to talk about restaurants. Yes. Do, uh, do you have a favorite restaurant? Do I have a favorite restaurant? Oh, sigh. Every time I try to have one, some go down. I'll go to, I might get two, three good visits, and then some happens. I'm like, oh, shucks. Oh, shucky ducky. This is not what I asked for. Um... Okay, so the better way to put it is I've had restaurants where I've had transformative experiences at. Okay. Uh, number one being Noma. Mm, okay. Um, the old Noma. Um, number two was um, rec- very recent, um, Blue Hill at Stone Barns. And I realized he's, he's not like, you know, we, we ain't talk about no Olive Garden, no Apple Bays. Olive Garden. No, Olive Garden. We're talking about places that are, you know, very high end, very, you know, that of course I got access to through the world of being connected with other chefs like mm-hmm. Renee Redzepi and Dan Barber, etc. Their hospitality and their graciousness. Okay, I, I get it. But for me, having those experiences uh, was transformative because um, it was a, for me it was like the moment of okay arrival and being able to say that I had finally gotten to the point where I could have. The experience that other people take for granted. You know, I mean, I am, uh, no joke, until this book showed up in my life and all the pieces were assembled, I am, I come from counting every single penny at the grocery store and, you know, praying that I make it do mm-hmm. that, that checkout. Adding, line. doing the mental add yeah, up, baby. With Ooh, that, I got thirty dollars so, in the account. Wait, with that solar calendar, what's the little calculator? Twenty-seven. Okay, what's tax? What's tax? Mm-hmm. What is tax? <laughs> and in Maryland, tax be deep. So, um, that's right, y'all. We say Maryland because Mar- yeah. you know you from Maryland. You say Maryland. It's like Maryland. Mar- no, we don't do that, sweetie. Um, so that for me, that's important. But also, I guess other experiences would be going to. Um, there was a there was a restaurant owned by. Um, the same fellow who owned Busboys and Poets mm. in D.C. called Eatonville, and I just thought it was it was okay. It was pretty good food. I mean, I'm, I I don't tend to judge quote unquote soul food, black food restaurants very highly, not because of anything other than sometimes you be going in the kitchen, like, baby, get let me in the kitchen. Y'all y'all don't forgot this now. Um, but Eatonville was spe- the, the the decor the decor was ex- was exquisite. You felt like you were actually going to Zora Neale Hurston's porch, mm. going to her house, and you felt her energy in there. Kith and Ken, Kwame's place, is spectacular. I'm so proud of that young brother. He is just like, oh, my God. I've had two fantastic meals there, both times with, you know, this fabulous array of chefs. Um, um, you know, Sean Sherman um, and Aaron and these other people. And we go, go in there, it's like, oh, my God. Um, Eduardo Jordan. I mean, I would just, you know, and we're sitting there eating this blend of West African, Southern, and African American, and 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 Afro Caribbean food. And he just does it right. Mm-hmm. He he elevates it, but not in a sense of it needs to be elevated, but he takes it to a level of 
you feel the connectivity between the dishes. Um, I need to get to Mashama's place. I'm so excited to, to visit her and eat. She's like, yes. you better come on down as a van and we got stuff to do, baby. I'm going right. next month and I'm oh, really I'm jealous. excited. Yes. I'm jealous. We, well, we got to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Baby. I mean, I've been dying to have the experience at the Grey. Um, and even recently at Omar Tate's pop-up, we were there together sitting side by side. Yes, we were. <laughs> the possibility, you know, I think yes. what got both of us was the possibility. Because the stories he was translating weren't just the enslavement stories. They were great migration stories. They were his childhood stories. They were contemporary African-American narratives. But the fact he has a visual artist background means that how he depicted those stories in a plate. I was most grabbed. The two that grabbed me, I think grabbed you as well, was the remnants of a South Philly Yes, stew. the crab. The crab, the garlic sauce, the, the sunflower seed kernels. The and newspaper. crumbled up newspaper on on a, on what a little piece of slate mm-hmm. representing those 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 growing up in stuff. Yep, yep. Right that we that we know from Baltimore, from Philly, from DC, from other places. And then there was the um, rose out of concrete from you know from the Tupac song, mm-hmm. and just how he used painted the plate with these essences of rose hips and and the the sugar and the gray and the red and it's just like. <laughs> I, I I was taken aback. It it's the level that's like Noma level of just like making the food into art. Mm-hmm. So for me, all of those things have been just like world spinning experiences. And then of course, um, going to Leah Chase's place was extraordinary. Uh, many I've been there three or four times, and the last time I saw Miss Chase and had a conversation with her, she said she found out that I hadn't put on. Um, I, I had no feeling to put in my filet gumbo. Ooh. And she called me out real quick. She said, Twitty, waiting for you all week. What you doing, man? And she smacked me on the arm and she said, I heard, <laughs> Mr. Culinary Historian, that you made filet gumbo without the filet. Come on, man. <laughs> and she said, she says, now look, grandma need to teach you, grandma need to teach you a little cordon on noir. Ooh. <laughs> I, I love that woman so much. Everybody did. Because she, yeah. she, she, I think we understand that she um, understood her role as a legend and as a mentor. It didn't matter where you were from, what you wanted to do. If you were serious about food and cooking or serious about telling our story, she was serious about making sure that she got it right. Mm-hmm. And the love was obvious. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's a big sacrifice when you have this big, beautiful family that supports you in your work. But you're also giving this love away to people everywhere. It's just extraordinary life, right? Do you see the connection between the ancestors and what's going on in black food now? Do you see it as a connected sort oh, of thing? Oh, yeah, because I see, you know, uh, Chef Wanda Blake, BJ Dennis, uh, Mishama, a, a lot of all of us. I think the conversation that we have about food and Omar, Omar went, did that trip south. You know, because, you know, once, once several of us do this and give each other permission, that's what helps. The DNA thing, all the chefs are like, I want to get my DNA done. Um, I need to get this done. Um, I want to do what you did. Well, that's, that's impactful and powerful because I guess my point in doing it was being able to say, yo, I'm not just black. I'm not just of West African heritage or Central African heritage. These are my exact people. These are my blood cousins. This dish is over here. You can see how this dish translated to the centuries down to this. I ate this in my grandmother and mother's kitchen. And my father made this. So therefore, I have the source code back. Hmm. So I think that when, when people would talk to me about black chefs, uh, mainstream media, media, food media so white, would talk about food with me. It would be like, um, well, what are the trends? What, what kind of cool stuff? And, then, and, then the, and I'm just like, baby, we're not just here to make make a little fun stuff for you to admire now. It's so many right. stories about using Cheetos and Muscatel and all that nonsense. Just the stereotypes of, right. of 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 us ghettoizing us. It's deeper than, than that. Yeah, it's so trend. much deeper than that. It couldn't be a trend. And that's, it's no, it's, not, it's a tradition. Right. It's looking at our food as, as tradition as opposed to trend. And so many of our chefs are like, oh yeah, I really want to fully understand my place in this universe. And by the way, it's not just only our relationship with strictly black food. If you grow up in the West Coast, you're going to be hit with those um, Pacific Rim and, and Chicano currents in food. 
Um, you, you grow up here in New York, you're going to be hit with currents from around the planet. You know, in D.C., we had the Ethiopian and West African communities, as well as diplomatic food from all over. Mm-hmm. So I think all of us can claim this sort of identity cooking where we are these, we're sitting at the crossroads and we're in, in incorporating that into our tradition. So that even now today, I think a lot of black chefs from home cooks onward, we ain't afraid of no adobo. <laughs> you know, you know, our Filipino cousins and brothers and sisters, you know, they're like, okay, cool. This is this is awesome. So it's it's a, it's an exchange, it's a you know, equity power exchange of ideas and culture. And we're all kind of like looking to decolonize ourselves and figure our way out of these paths. But also really take a good look at what we have in common. I think that's really important, very powerful. Yeah. Um, so my last question for you, uh, your last meal, where would it be? Oh, Lord And who mercy. was invited? She back to death. Lord, the Bible wants some Death has beef. come up a lot. Has possessed you, my sister. <laughs> He's asking you these questions. He's really writing the notes. <laughs> and you can invite anyone, living, dead, you never met dead. before. <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> It's all hypothetical. Now, I'm going to offend somebody. I guess I got to invite my mama back. Because, you know, she's, according to the diviners in West Africa, she watches over me, protects me. So I got to have my mama back. Um, Sorry, boo. I love you, but. No problem. um, (laughs) Wait, you're not invited? Oh, I can invite more than one person? Yes, you can. Oh, but I think, girl, we're going to have a long guest list then. Oh, okay. Uh, we're going to have a long guest list. But I, I mean, if you just want it to be one person, you can do that. No, 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 Sorry no, no. Sorry, too. No. I, I have a parade of people. Um, huh. I mean, I don't know. All my zaddies, past and present. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, but on a, on a serious tip. Don't see. Don't have your last moment. Um, I, I think that oh my what I would have is home no, cooking. No, no, let's go back to the zaddies. <laughs> listen, listen. I want to know past yes, and, pre- and present. Listen, James from Albany, New York. If you're listening, oh my god, um, <laughs> leave James alone. <laughs> leave James Wait, alone. Wait, do you have do you Hi, have James. a zaddy in Ithaca? Because that's one of our sponsors. No, I so don't know. <laughs> No, I was zaddy. <laughs> I got zaddies in different area codes. Oh my god! Oh my god! Zaddies in different zip codes. Let me get any more, you know, more alliteration. Um, and gay zaddies and gabies, um, <laughs> legal gabies. Thank you. Um, but no, I think it would be home cooking. Um, I don't have a plan for that. I hope I don't. <laughs> Um, but if I was to do a, well, let's put it this way. If I was to do a celebration of life meal, knowing that I could have tomorrow or 10 more years and I could just have friends and family and invite the spirits of people who I've loved to, to be present at their own special ancestral table. Let's look at it. Let's, let's do it like that. Okay. I would definitely have, um, all the good stuff I love. Um, our family's version of collards and potato salad and fried chicken and barbecue. Um, mustard slash tomato based. Um, I would definitely have my kosher soul rolls because I love anything when it's spring roll. Um, oh, uh, scallion pancakes. Yeah. Because, you know. Um, <laughs> um Chocolate chip ice cream with a little sea salt. Mm. Yeah. Um, my grandmother's red rice. You know. And jollof rice as well. Why do, you can you can have both. Yeah, you I mean. Have, you need to chop both though. Meal. You don't get that just one. You need to chop them both. Um I have turned into like Nigerian Sam after coming from Nigeria like for two weeks, yes. I'm totally Mr. PG. Um uh uh-huh. My sister, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. Oh. <laughs> I am not only a yin boy, I'm a black man. Eh? Eh. Um, touch wood. Um, <laughs> I just I just kind of absorbed all these good things as I've gone across. Um, oh, cigars from Morocco. Oh, okay. You know, filo, again, that's the thing about a Moroccan spring roll. Mm-hmm. Filo dough and the 
and the ground lamb inside of it, and the beef from Senegal, which is roasted lamb. I, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm an unfortunate carnivore more than anything else. Other people look at me and go, oh, he must eat some. No, I love meat more than anything else. But I also love good, really good vegetables. I think my Blue Hill visit taught me how much I really appreciate fresh vegetables and their role in my life. Prepared excellently. Prepared excellently. I mean, and I mean, um, that watermelon and feta and tomato salad, just spectacular. Fresh herbs and everything. Um, chervil. All that stuff makes me very happy and excited. What are you um, drinking? What am I drinking? Girl, I'm Moscato, please. Um, I ain't gonna front with y'all. I'm not gonna front with y'all at all. Moscato, white zen, and some folk wine. I'm drinking Ooh, some peach wine. You are from Maryland. Wine. I'm, I'm Maryland to bone. And don't you better not forget my old bay at the table either. Yep. But if you forget that old bay, we ain't got nothing to say to each other. Okay. I always say, you know, you're, for, you're from Maryland. If you get buried in Maryland, already turn third party. Oh. <laughs> and Balmar. Okay. Well, Which are Dugs? You have to. You have to come back. I do have to you come do. back because you know what? You are really gorgeous. Oh, thank and you. And so, like, um, I have to be. In all due respect to to, to, to your fine husband. Um, <laughs> but you know, you're really gorgeous. But your gorgeousness is both inside and out. And I find that your voice is so important. Oh, and I'm thank so you proud so of you much. for the writing that you've done, and the work that you're going to push everything forward. And um, you're really a joy, Miss Corsha. Thank you so much. That means a lot coming from you. Look, I choose my family carefully. I ain't got time to waste, honey. Now, especially no. that you got me on my deathbed. No, on your deathbed this whole interview. <laughs> thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much. Thank you for having my little boo over here. Yes, and Taylor. And his Drag Wars for... t-shirt. Mm. It is yep. a good t-shirt. Yeah, oh, is that? Oh, yeah. That's yes, real yes. in the middle. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week on The Hungry Society. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.